listening to the SLCC podcast series What's on the Agenda. Each episode brings you content created especially for clerks. The shows include question and answer sessions with sector experts, special guests and much more. Learn more about our podcasts by visiting us at slcc.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Shelley Parker from the SLCC, and today we're lucky to have James Vaughan, who's a retired chief constable, talking to us. Hello, James. Hello, Shelley. Hi. Could you start off by telling us a bit about your career in the police? Of course. Yeah, so I joined um, Wiltshire Police as a a young constable in 1992, and I was a, a bobby on the beat around Chippenham and Melksham in Trowbridge, which is north and west Wiltshire. After a few years, I moved on to become a detective in the same area, a young detective constable dealing with more serious crime, which is what ignited my interest in murder investigation. I got involved in a number of murder investigations as a young constable. I then moved on through policing. I was later promoted and sent to Swindon, which was a a slightly different dynamic, a sort of city-sized town in, in Wiltshire. And I was a detective sergeant and a detective inspector in Swindon. And then from there, I was placed on the fast track scheme. I'd been apparently doing fairly well as as a young cop. And I joined the fast track scheme and moved in and out of various roles over the next few years. Chief inspector, superintendent and later chief superintendent, mainly in detective roles. And it's at that time that I was trained as a senior investigating officer, or an SIO as they're called, which gave me the huge honour and privilege of investigating murder. Um, So that was something that I really enjoyed. I I became the sort of senior detective for the county and then later moved on to training to become a chief officer and I was later an assistant deputy and later a chief constable down in Dorset where I spent the last 10 years of my service. And as a chief officer, as a chief constable, I carried national portfolios around child homicide and forensics. Yeah, an interesting and varied career. And clearly you've taken that experience with you into your role as, here goes, the chair of the Offensive Weapon Homicide Review Oversight Board, which sounds like it's got lots of responsibility. Um, And immediately, of course, we think of homicide rates in England and Wales. Have those numbers actually gone up? I'm presuming they have in, say, the last 20 years. Yes. So if you go back 20 years, homicide was at a horrendous level, about a 1,000 cases a year in England and Wales. That's three a day. And then through the early noughties, up until about 2014, through really focused effort, homicide rates were brought down to about half of that. But in 2014-15, we started to see a really worrying uplift in violent crime and particularly homicide and in 2022 we had 696 homicides in England and Wales. Now that's quite scary Um, there's been a huge effort by community safety and criminal justice agencies a huge drive from government to get ahead of violent crime. There has been new investment in policing over the last few years Police officer numbers have risen. There is investment around violent crime. There's a new strategy written by the Home Office, the Violent Crime Reduction Strategy. There's a new homicide reduction strategy in the, uh, that's been developed by the National Police Chiefs Council. 
and some specific funding from government for the worst affected areas, about 20 large cities and large towns around the country, where a focused sort of partnership-led effort has been uh, enabled by some additional funding. They're called the Violence Reduction Units. Now, that's, I'm really pleased to say, if you look at the data for 2023, 22 23, we saw an overall 15% reduction in murder rates, which is really welcome. And But unfortunately, there is one cohort of victims that has not really moved downwards. So we've been very successful with domestic homicides. There's been about a 25% reduction in those in the last year or so. We've been pretty successful with youth violence and gang violence. Again, there's been big reductions. But the area that remains sticky is adults using weapons in private spaces. And those numbers haven't really come down. And we're really, and now my new role and the new powers under new legislation that was laid before Parliament last year puts a, a new forensic focus on those types of crime. So when you say in private places, do you mean in p- people's own homes? Generally speaking, yes, yes, in the homes. Did I interpret that right? In fact, 20 years ago, it was a lot worse than it is now, but there's been another spike. When, when did that start to happen and why do you think that was? So so 20 years ago, it was worse than today. Mm. And I'm glad to say we haven't seen it get back to that same peak. It was a 1,000 a year in 20. 20- 03 it peaked about just under 700 a year last in 22 but it started going up in about 2014 and 15 there's a whole range of issues we've had economic restraint in the early you know following the financial crash of 2008 every public service every private business has had to cut their cloth and readjust their business model with less money lots of funding was taken out of policing because the economic environment we find ourselves in, but that had some consequences. And what we found by, and there was a lag effect. So whilst budgets were sort of reduced every year for about three or four years from Mm. 2010 onwards, we'd built such resilience in crime reduction over about 18 years that actually there was a lag effect. I actually wrote an essay on my master's degree back in about 2012, which predicted that crime would rise, but there would be a lag effect because it would take a while for the effects of of budget reductions to kick in. And sure enough, we didn't start seeing mm. um, a rise in crime until about 2014, 2015. And then it rose quite alarmingly quickly. And politicians very quickly reacted. Um, we had a couple of elections, if you recall, in the late, sort of in 2017, 2019. By then, politicians locally were saying to me, Public concern about crime had gone from being about the 15th or 16th most important thing. Back in the sort of early noughties, people had stopped worrying about crime because crime levels had gone down so uh, had gone down so far. But of course, by 2014-15, people were reporting they were worried again. It was about up again around about the second or third most concerning thing for most people mm. in in government surveys. So you can but, see why investment... So the headlines these days in the press tell us that knife crime in particular has increased. Have, have, have the recorded rates gone up in recent years? Yes, they have. And they continue to go up, unfortunately. The last set of police recorded figures shows like a 10% increase in knife crime. And that is a real worry because that's where the adult 
offensive weapon-enabled crime is focusing is trying to understand why, why people are carrying knives more frequently than they previously did and to try and use evidence-based practice to reduce it. Part of the statutory reviews now about adult offensive weapon murders is to try and take thematic or empirical evidence of what works to prevent murder and drive that and translate that. Sort of hot that. spots, yeah. Hot yeah. spots, yeah. themes. You know, the obvious themes are often we've we've got some cost of living pressures. We've got poverty, deprivation is a, is a mm. factor. Alcohol and drug abuse is a factor. Mental ill health is a factor. So there is. So we're seeing all of that coming together, and people are then arming themselves more frequently than they previously did. Because they feel they need to, because, for some reason. And there's an interesting piece of evidence that says that the moment you arm yourself with a knife, you instantly become more vulnerable to being murdered with a knife. And yeah. so it is a misnomer that you're safer carrying a weapon to protect yourself. You actually statistically make yourself more vulnerable to be murdered. And of course, we're all horrified and saddened by those very acts of, of serious violence. But there's a much wider impact, isn't there, um, on, sort of impact on victim families and more. Could you tell us how wide that actually spreads? It's really, really impactive. Throughout my career, right the, right the way back to when I was first a young detective dealing with homicide and murder, you would meet families and witnesses that were related to or friends of mm. people that had been murdered um, and it takes a generation to get over the impact of somebody being murdered, especially if it was a particularly gruesome or violent mm. death. You know, mothers mothers will never get over their children being murdered. And you speak, I speak to mothers of victims time and time again. They never, ever get over that, husbands and wives. So the, the impact is really, really deep. It's It lasts for generations. It also, so if a, if a child gets murdered... We see nowadays frequent headlines, don't we, about teenagers being stabbed or murdered with knives. And we've had one of those in Bournemouth only this year. The impact on the rest of the school children and the young people surrounding those individuals is huge. The trauma that brings, because the, the, the reality of murder when it touches you is unthinkable. Murder is played out in TV and, and film dramas, and it's quite glamorous, isn't it? And it's and it's a it's a sexy. It sells books, it sells movies, it sells TV dramas. But when it touches you personally, then and thankfully it's not touched me personally. But all the people I've dealt with over the years, I can see how it's touched. Yeah, them. We can we can only imagine. Yes, I, imagine. I guess there's an impact on the criminal justice system and costs as well. Isn't there? There's an estimate that the Home Office came up with last year, I think, that says it costs around £3.2 million to investigate and prosecute an average murder. One murder. One murder. Now, do the quick maths, and that takes you well over £2 billion a year just to prosecute and investigate. Then you think, if you take a mother of a murdered boy or girl, mm. they might find themselves in mental ill health for 20 years as a result of that murder. You think of the cost, then those costs have been added to that around the cost of care and support to survivors of this horrible crime. So the, whilst there is, it's always nice to understand costs because um, it's very powerful in allocating resources, 
So $2.6 billion, I think, was the last estimate. You could probably double that with the extended costs and the hard-to-measure other social costs of homicide. So what's actually being done to prevent all of this happening? So there is lots being done across agencies and from government. Government have been very focused on this. Um, We saw the government publish two years ago a beating crime plan which placed um, reducing violence and particularly homicide as a top priority. And that was really clear. I was in the briefings when policing minister came to a chief constable's conference and made it really clear to chief constables that homicide was going to be, reducing homicide was going to be the number one priority. I know we've had a, a change of governments and ministers since, but that's prevailed. So they, they laid legislation, they improved strategy, they provided resources, and the criminal justice partners and the community safety partners have rallied to focus on it, which is why I've, I think we've seen the reduction around violence against women and domestic homicide. We've seen a reduction around youth crime. This new initiative, which is the statutory reviews of the adult-enabled, uh, adult knife-enabled or gun-enabled uh, homicide, is the latest measure that I think has a, the capability of a long-term impact on driving down crime. And I, and I presume it's not just the police, is it? It's about partnership working. Who are those important, vital, key elements of those partnerships? Somebody once told me, you cannot arrest your way out of every crime problem. You really can't. So the only, and, and my grandmother told me as a child that an ounce of prevention was worth every pound of cure. So, and of course, to prevent homicide, which is what the, the, the game we're in, that can only be done by everybody working together. And that's bringing the police, local authorities, the health system, private sector, town, parish councils, the community, schools, in working together to try and find ways of, of encouraging young people not to carry weapons, talking about the risks that surround homicide and the, and the precursor acts and environments and locations that can sometimes lead to serious violence. And only when you work together and problem solve. And it's not all about money, actually. I mean, resources are always nice to be able to do specific things but actually there are lots of resources already available that if they come together in the right way they can make an impact and i talk about a case study in my small town in in dorset and this is I'm, around rural communities more and smaller areas because although we always imagine don't we that the the big crime the homicide cases they happen in those larger urban areas but but though to a lesser but growing level it's happening in those market towns and villages as well or there's certainly a perception of it and with county lines infiltrating these places there's that serious risk that serious crime comes with it can you tell us a little bit about that county lines element and 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 how and what you did to combat crime in in dorset yeah so County lines is, is talked of often and explained less often. So people hear it a lot, but they don't really know what it is. What it actually is, is a business model used by drug gangs. So it's, and the model is quite senior, quite nasty, violent, vile criminals sit at the top of the line, often in cities. The line is a telephone line, um, which is the, the method used. The telephone line is then used by a network of people that then will come out of the cities 
create a network to distribute drug, drugs in the provinces. What's so cynical about this model is the serious organised crime groups that, that at the top of these lines, they will often recruit vulnerable young people, often young men and often young black men from cities um, who are desperate, who are often debt-bound or threat-bound or violence-bound. Um, they get themselves involved because they've been excluded from school or they, they've been, they, they find themselves in a difficult place in their life and all of a sudden somebody offers them a way out that they can offer them money, resources by getting involved in county lines. They then often try to trap them into some kind of debt and then use serious violence to bond them to that debt. And they, then they get sent out to the provinces like the, you know, the small towns and villages where they will then try and recruit other vulnerable people to get to be part of the network, to stay one step ahead of the cops who were trying to, to enforce. So they'll, they'll take over somebody's small flat or bedsit if they're vulnerable and they'll operate from there for a few weeks and then move on to somebody else. They can spot vulnerability at 100 feet. So when they see a vulnerable young person that might be a runaway or a miss, persistent missing person or somebody that, that's struggling with life, again, they will go and recruit them and get them debt-bound and threat-bound into the model. So that's a, so it's a very cynical model. And what unfortunately what we see is extreme levels of violence being used to enforce the, the drug dealing, often leading to death and homicide. And did you see that in, in Dorset? We did. So it, unfortunately, no, I don't think there's any small towns in the country that, are, that escape this. Um, Dorset had many, many lines coming in. I think at one point we had 70 or more young people on our target list of people that were being potentially criminally exploited. And we tried to use various tactics and methods using social workers, youth workers, police officers, health professionals to try and you know, provide sort of protection for those people. We, we had an initiative in Dorset which was held up to be a national success where we were trying to identify potentially the vulnerable homes of the, where vulnerable people lived to try and stop the cuckoo in of their houses and and begin to and do some really really rigorous enforcement with specialised teams to prevent them coming and and some of that's been very successful in Dorset. There are less county lines operating in Dorset now than there were four years ago, for instance, but it's still very much a problem for the provinces. So then, to finish up on really, if if you were a clerk working for the SLCC and working for a local council in a in a small town. Or, or a village, what would you be doing to help prevent serious violent crime in your area? R really good question. F first of all, is is remind them that they've got not only have they got a moral not moral obligation to help. There's actually a statutory obligation for all for all partners, local authorities, police, health, and everybody involved in community safety. To you, your your listeners might have heard of something called the serious violence duty, and that's a statutory obligation placed on um, author the authorities, if you like, to map out exactly what violent crime looks like in their area and then come together with a really rigorous plan of how they're going to work together. Well, actually, it's the towns and parishes that are going to be asked to do some work to help with that big prevention message. And I'll give you an example of where I live. I live in a beautiful small market town in Dorset called Blandford Forum. It has a small town council. We have an upper tier 
county council, for want of a better word, there is a serious violence duty upon us. And the town council work with the local neighbourhood policing team, the local school, the local businesses, the local community. And last earlier this year, we had a series of knife incidents in the town. And the police were beginning to really focus heavily on knife crime. The clerk at Blanford, she was excellent. She, she brought together the town councillors and charities and the police and the school into a town hall event, which was a knife crime event, inviting people in to talk to the police and town council colleagues and third sector of charities about knife crime to try and raise awareness. And then we held a like a round table discussion in the school with with parents that had been worried about knife crime in the town and we got them involved in some initiatives some so we got them involved in damping down some of the hysteria on social media and we got the local police to come and present to parents about what the real statistics actually told us and of course the the fear of crime was much higher than the actual crime it was a problem we did have a few knife crime incidents in the town the public were really alarmed about it. There was like a moral crisis happening. And by bringing everybody together, we just damped it all down and put some really sensible operations together to stop knife crime. So we focused on intelligence around young people that were carrying knives and the police did some searches of them to try and stop them carrying it. We did some patrol work around the school. We got the school, the teachers involved. We got the prefects involved. We even had the mayor come in to talk to kids at school about the work of the town council. So there's lots that the clerks can do. And actually the clerks have got the leadership role of encouraging and making sure that councillors in their local area are putting these things on their agenda. Bring, bringing in the police, bringing in the school, bringing in the charities to make sure that councillors re- understand what they can do because it's the clerk who can, who can well, clearly affect that agenda. Well done to the clerk in, in Blandford Forum. We'll certainly be in touch with them, whoever they may be. Um, and, and that's all great advice for us, James. Thank you very much for sparing some of your time to talk to us. It's been really helpful. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 